Think big. Think positive. Never show any sign of weakness. Always go for the throat. Buy low, sell high. Fear, that's the other guy's problem. Nothing you have ever experienced can prepare you for the unbridled carnage you're about to witness. Right. Super Bowl, the World Series, they don't know what pressure is. In this building, it's either kill or be killed. You make no friends in the pits and you take no prisoners. One minute, you're up half a million in soybeans, and the next, boom. Your kids don't go to college and they've repossessed your Bentley. Are you with me? Welcome to Turner's Take Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Turner, author of Turner's Take Newsletter uh, and broker here at Stonex. I work in the grain and oil seeds group. I also work closely with our dairy team and also our energy our energy team. So if you have any questions about any of those products, uh, we'd be happy to help you out. We do uh, hedging and spec trading here. We do futures and options. We are in uh, the OTC and structured products markets and also... Uh, for our, our our clients who are on the hedge side of the business, whether it be producer or consumer, we also offer um, consulting services too. So if you have any questions about that, please let me know. My number here is 312-706-7610. Email is craig.turner at stonex.com. If you're a client, you hear something that we need to go over, um, do something for your account, maybe have a change in strategy for your uh, for your business and commodity buying or selling if you're a farmer, uh, please reach out anytime if you're client. You should have my cell phone, so you can call the cell to or shoot me a text. All right, if you like the podcast, please go, go over to iTunes. Give us a positive review. That's how people find us. And uh, if you want to check out the newsletter, you go to turnerstake.com. We'll also have some links in the show notes where you can find it there too. So let's get into it. We did not have a podcast last week, mainly because I was sick for most of the week. I uh, was on a Cub Scout trip to see not this past weekend but the weekend before and there was a sleepover at the field museum with my cub scout group and i'm pretty sure i picked up some kind of dino flu at the field museum and uh it really knocked me out for most of uh all last week i hadn't been sick since before the pandemic knock on wood and uh kind of forgot what that was like so um yeah so we're back at it now still uh voices getting back there and um let's get to it so on the uh, macro front, two things happened in the past two weeks for our, all our listeners in North America. One, Canada raised interest rates a quarter point. I believe they're at 4.5 now. And the United States this week in, uh, raised interest rates again, 0.25. I've been saying for a while, uh, Canada and the United States have just been working lockstep um, pretty much. Uh, I, I mean, no one ever asks the question at the FOMC meeting, you know, if how much communication there is about between central banks around the world, but really seems like United States and Canada here are pretty much going lockstep in North America on how they're going to fight inflation. Um, and it's been, it seems like it's been effective. Like the latest reports I've seen out of the IMF has Canadian and the United States inflation coming down in 2023. Some of it is transitory. We have been talking about that for a while, but some of it really is structural. By far, you know, clearly, and um, and uh, at least that's starting to come down. So, are rates going to come down? I seriously doubt it. But are they going to stabilize here? I think that's what the Fed's been talking about. That's what the Bank of 
Canada has been talking about, and the Bank of England too. Those are really the three that I look at the most. Those are the three that seem to be um, talking, you know, and kind of doing a coordinated effort. And when you add in the United Kingdom, United States, and Canada, that is a huge chunk of the top ten global economies. When you take a look at the share of GDP, so they, you know, the three of those can almost. Uh, you know, kind of leading the fight there. So that's what I've been paying attention to. And uh, if you're interested in those kind of things on the macro markets, I've been paying attention to those three central banks too. So going forward, maybe United States interest rates get up to five, maybe four, you know, we're at four and a half, 475 now. Maybe we get to that 475 or 520, you know, you know, maybe one more quarter point, And then we hold for a while. Canada holds, Bank of England holds, and we just hopefully inflation continues to keep on going down because the, what the Fed is going to want to do is have interest rates just high enough where inflation can steadily come down month over month until it gets over to a normal and acceptable rate, which is usually somewhere between like two and three percent. Um, and uh, and maybe that's what 2023 is all about. So it'd be interesting, um, too, because it's not going to, you know, in the past when we've had recessions, uh, especially here in the United States, but also throughout the global economy, they've been steep or, or created by some kind of financial crisis, whether it be subprime or COVID or, you know, or something like that. You haven't had kind of like I would call just a, a vanilla shallow recession, the kinds that you saw more likely in the 80s and 90s, um, where they only lasted six to 12 to 18 months, never got severe, and then the, the economy would kind of pull out of it so we'll see we'll see what happens here but it, this seems more like a soft landing than a hard landing and crash um, to me on the macro side also um, the stock market seems to be recovering um, I'm going to just take a look pull up a chart here but you know I always keep an eye on the mini S&P you know in the futures for so the S&P 500 and the Dow and the NASDAQ the NASDAQ the technology play that's um that can be more sensitive to you know what's going on in the economy in the short term, but for more of you know where are we a kind of longer term or um, something like a bigger index that encompasses more sectors, I'll take a look at the S and P and at about 4,100, that's not so bad. I mean we're getting up to highs that we haven't seen since August, um, you know, and if we take a look back, even going back for a year, I mean, we were trading in all, you know, maybe May, June, July, close to 4,300 in the S&P. Right now we're at 4,100. Keep in mind, we're at 3,600 um, in the depths of the end of summer, early fall. You know, the highs, I believe, were around 47, 4,800, way back in December 21, January 22, and we're still a ways off, but there's a recovery. And now when you take a look at the chart, we had a downturn in the stock market. End of December 21, you know, start of Jan 22, and steadily came down for about a year, right up, probably made lows in September, November 22. And since then, we've been making higher lows and higher highs. Um, so we'll see if the economy, you know, the economy's forward looking. And if the economy's forward looking and expecting better growth or at least stabilization, because these, at least these rates are stabilizing, keep an eye on the energy markets. You know, right now, Crude oils at $76 in June. So we're in the mid 70s here. You know, this East 23 is 73. Um, I think we're 78 more closer to the front month. It's natural gas too. And I mean, I got Arbob in front of me, 250 um, on Arbob, 
That's the heating oil, which you also take a look at for diesel. It's about 268 for December, 274 for June and March for 288. Natural gas is start is trying to stabilize at about two and a half, I think, here. Listen, uh, you know, natural gas is its own thing. We've had such a mild winter. We've been able to actually catch up on the shortages that we had earlier in the year and the situation in Europe, for whatever reason, um, didn't get as dire as uh, was feared um, and prices have been able to ease there. The heating oil, um, you know, with lower economic demand and that seasonally, you don't need as much diesel at the moment. Um, you would think heating oil will be higher just from the heating oil com component, but really hasn't been. Uh, and gasoline is not in high demand right now either. So these markets have been able to come back down. What is interesting though, crude oil seems like, it almost seems like there's a put at crude oil in the low 70s and, you know, structurally in the market. And what I mean by that is whenever crude, and this has happened a couple of times now, it's gotten to the low 70s, OPEC starts rattling the cage and says, hey, we need to start looking at production cuts. They may cut production, they may not. They'll start talking about it, right? And then you'll get some money flow coming into the market or they actually really do cut like they did a couple of months ago. Um, and then when they talked this week, they kept the cuts in place. OPEC really wants, in my opinion, and if you read the news and follow up with them and what they've been saying, I think you kind of have to believe them. Like they really want crude oil, you know, in terms of, let's say, you know, above 70. So if that's Brent 75 and, and WTI 70 or however that spread's going to work, I mean, they really don't want it dropping into the 60s here. And they will cut production to make sure that crude is going to be in the 70s or higher. And that's what they're going to do. They have that pricing power, OPEC plus, when you throw in Russia and, you know, uh, and some of the other major producers that, you know, that are now part of OPEC, you know, they can do that. Um, what is also interesting here is when we do get into the low 70s, it's kind of just add like more support is the Biden administration does need to go in and buy crude oil for the SPR. And when we're in the low 70s, um, it looks like they're going to be buying. Now, I don't know if they're going to have to raise their bids a little bit and start buying in the high 70s or they'll be patient. I mean, as being a future broker since uh, if the past 15 years here, um, you know, sometimes you can miss your buy if it's too low. But, uh, you know, I have a feeling that, you know, when we get into the low 70s, you're going to see United States buying for the strategic reserves. You're going to see OPEC talking about um, cuts. I wouldn't, you know, who knows what goes on in back channels. And that's just the way it is. And I think if the economy does recover, which when I take a look at long-term projections, you know, the first quarter and second quarter look like flat, tepid growth. But there is the expectation. Also, you remember China's been going to be opening up again, and they've been closed since COVID with their zero, you know, zero COVID policy, they'll be growing again. So energy demand and economic demand are likely to pick up throughout the year. And the idea is with interest rates holding steady, with the economy just working out, you know, you're having layoffs now, but in you know three, six months from now, you can start seeing growth from China, growth from the business community again, demand for energy again. And the second half of the year looks a lot better, which is why from economic point of view, which is why I've been looking at some of the summer and 2000 and also December 20, 2023 energy contracts. I always think it's easier to keep it in crude instead of Arbob and diesel. They, they, they tend to trade the same. They're all very related. Um, I mean, basically you're just, 
processing the crude at a certain temperature, and that's going to determine whether you get gasoline and uh, you know, or diesel or jet fuel or whatever it may be. Um, but they're all products of each other. There is a supply and demand component to it. But if you go to the source, you know, the crude, you know, I like buying two things. I like buying call spreads in July, anticipating, you know, a recovery in the energy markets for the spring and summer and the driving season. And I, you know, December 23, I mean, if we really get, if China really comes back and the economy is recovering and the Fed at the end of the year is actually talking about, you know, decreasing interest rates, um, you know, we're not drilling for more oil. It's green energy is a great idea. It's going to take a while to replace all the demand that stems from, from the energy markets for the fossil fuel markets. And we could have a situation where crude oil again, by the end of the year, or maybe even the summer is, is higher. And we've all seen it. Anyone who's been paying attention to the crude oil market. I mean, you can go from the mid seventies to the mid nineties fairly fast, uh, depending on what the, what the economic conditions are. So I think, you know, we're not drilling enough. We don't have enough capacity. You know, we don't have enough green energy to meet the demand of fossil fuel energy if the economy comes back, you know, and starts rolling again. I really like the idea of call spreads um, or future spreads, you know, maybe something like a front month versus December or maybe a summer month versus December. And we can talk about it, but I do like those. Like that on the, for anyone who has energy needs and it's, I mean, it's going to be a spec play too. I bet the funds get involved into the energy markets also as once they start seeing the uh, the economy turning around and then, and the Fed's going to basically stop with the the interest rate hikes, which is coming. Like that is that is around the corner. They probably have one more left in them for now, and then we'll you know if you if you trust what they're saying, and I do. So I think um, the they, the Fed has been very transparent about how they want to go about managing interest rate policy. Um, uh, I mean, they, I mean they couldn't. They couldn't be more transparent about it and, you know, to let the business community know how they're thinking what they want to go by. So that is, you know, so that's going to be the play. We're going to be looking at energy, energy plays for the for the summer and energy plays for December 23. Um, when it comes to so that's the energy markets, we've went over the macro economy. Let's talk about grains and oil seeds here. Um, listen, so we're going to be choppy. Let's start off with I'm going to start off the oil seeds. Soybeans have been strong. Canola hasn't been as strong. Uh, when I take a look at, you know, the the soybean market, you know, there's only two. Listen, soybeans are soybeans and palm oil are the two major oil seeds, and then you've got, you know, canola, rapeseed, and sunflower as your kind of minor oil seeds, and then you get all the specialty stuff that you might see at the supermarket. Um, so, you know, when it comes to soybeans, you only have two major locations that produce soybeans for the world export market. And if you're tight, then, you know, like, like we are right now in the United States, you know, the South American crop really does matter and you need a big soybean crop. Otherwise you're up the Creek without a paddle for six months in the global export market while you're waiting for North America, namely the United States to make, you know, to basically grow more soybeans. What's interesting about South America is, you know, that first crop planted in Argentina is going to have yield loss. And the question now is how much? Now, the second crop planted in Argentina could have trend line yields with the recent rains they're getting, which would be good. And also farmers decided to plant more than normal in the second for the second crop than the first crop because they saw the weather patterns. They knew the first they knew the, the weather for the first crop was was going to be bad no matter what. And, you know, the second period, the second crop 
you know, at least could get better. Probably in their minds, couldn't get worse than the first, right? You know, so why not just plant more in that second? And they have, and there's going to be a lot more risk premium associated with the second crop, the later planted stuff. Brazil still has, has been, you know, Brazil's going to probably have a record production this year between the acres and the yields and the conditions they have. And they, you know, not every place is perfect in Brazil. They have problems in parts of Mato Grosso. So there are some issues. There are definitely some issues in Southern Brazil, but yeah, I mean, so, I mean, we're here and also throughout the country in big spots of record yields in Brazil too, right? Which is like, you know, no different than the United States and Canada. You have your problem areas, you have your garden spots. They all kind of, you know, these are big, huge areas of land, right? And Brazil's no different and neither is Argentina, but it does sound like Brazil is going to have quite the crop um, and the weather patterns have been improving. Um, as La Nina has been, you know, weakening, and we could even see a neutral weather pattern later on this spring uh, for the United States, and who knows, even by the end of the year, we may even start to be talking about El Nino, which would be great for crop development the year forward. So that's where we are on, you know, kind of like these long-range weather patterns. South America is just—it's just, just going to be choppy because we've got tight old crop, and things we will get a new crop supply from South America, high prices have been hurting demand we've seen that in corn like we're about a couple hundred million bushels below pace i did notice on the pace for soybeans you know we're actually above pace by i want to say i mean i have to take a look at the chart but i want to say you know the the usda is predicting around two billion uh exports for soybeans in the united states we've already done like 1.7 or 1 1.8 you know if we looked at the pace compared to last you know years in the past you can make the argument, you know, maybe soybean, you know, if it's just, you know, just based on the pace and the export sales, we could be at 2.1 or 2.2 billion on soybean experts, uh, exports. The problem is, by doing that, is the USDA has basically come out and said, as soon as these soybeans in Brazil start hitting the export market, they're, they're, they're much cheaper in the United States, which they are, at least like 50 cents um, cheaper down in South America than in the Gulf right now. And... You know they're going to have so much of it that they, as soon as these soybeans hit the market, which will probably be sometime in March, between then and the end of the United States marketing year, which is, you know, which would be September, end of September, you know, basically, um, I'm sorry, at the end of August, you know, basically it it's over. Like the, you know, the there'd be no, really no more reason for exports to coming to the United States. Plus, you know, when Trump negotiated the, you know, the, uh, the phase one deal, you know, there was, you know, there was a deal in place for China to come in and buy a lot of U.S. commodities. I don't know if that's going to happen this year. And quite honestly, it seems like China would rather be more strategically aligned with Brazil on buying commodities than the United States. Which, you know, from their perspective, I get it's not like the, these two countries are on the most friendliest terms right now. So, you know, the United States is talking about trying to get, you know, away from China being part of the supply chain on a lot of critical um, products that are important to America. I'm sure China is looking at the same thing and saying to themselves, well, we have a lot of products here that are, you know, critical you know, for our country. You know, we should be diversifying away from the United States, just the way things are going, you know, politically, geopolitically between those two countries. And that's just, you know, that's just the way it is. So, you know, in so I'm not, it's not like demand will dry up for commodities in North America, 
but you know when it comes to like who's buying in the margins i just think soybeans and corn get sold out first in south america before north america while in the past when we had that phase one agreement it would have been the the opposite right so there's going to be choppiness there's going to be the weather premium the, the weather is critical we're going to be dry here for the next couple of weeks i think in argentina this for the first half of february we need some rains in big way for the second half of february right now the models are showing that but you know you go past two weeks on a weather model how much confidence can you really put in that market knows that so we'll sell it we'll stay elevated in terms of you know and then we'll just see what it comes in like we get the if we get the rain people get started you know more um confident about production you'll definitely see a break in the grain markets in in the late february and into march then we'll start talking about new crop acres i think listen there's every incentive to plant whatever you can right now there is more incentive here in north america or especially the united states to, to plant corn over soybeans in a lot of areas. There's also a pretty big incentive, especially on the Eastern Corn Belt, to do double crop soybeans, wheat. And we, we did see that 15% increase in winter wheat acres. My gut feeling is that's double crop. I mean, it's basically soybean acres, you know, from last season that this year are becoming a double crop wheat soybean. And I wouldn't be, and it pencils very well. I wouldn't be surprised if that's how that plays out. Thinking 92 million acres corn, thinking 89 million acres soybeans, you start plugging and chugging a trend line yield into all that stuff. We are going to be at a 1.8, you know, billion carryout for, for corn. That's, you know, that's more like $5 new crop corn instead of $6 new crop corn, if that actually happens, in my opinion. Um, uh, you know, and the soybeans, if we have 89 million acres, we're probably sitting at a carryout of at least 300, most likely 400. And if, the South American yields are really good and the weather really does come through for South America. We could even be at like, you know, somewhere between a four and a 500 carryout for soybeans. Again, it's not the end of the world, 400 million carryouts still around 10% stock to usage, but instead of beans, like at 14 and 15 bucks at that point, we're really talking about 11 and $12. I think, you know, where corn's at five, maybe a harvest low for corn is five and a harvest low for you no know, soybeans is like in the 11s or 12 bucks. And that would put, Still puts wheat around seven, um, seven and eight dollars between the three classes. But and if you take a look at the balance sheet, I think wheat's the hardest to solve first. Uh, you know, Ukraine is gonna Ukraine's gonna be an issue for a very long time. We haven't talked about it a whole lot, you know, after, you know, I mean we talk about it, but we don't talk about it, you know, going forward here. You know, there's all the when the Black Sea uh erupted. You know, there was a lot of talk about, you know, how many years would it take for Ukraine to get back up and running? And here we are, we're, you know, a year, basically a year since this war started. And um, I think what's going to happen here is, you know, Ukraine is only going to produce about 50% to 60% of what they did before the war. Um, you know, they don't have the resources, the farmers don't have the financing, you know, the infrastructure is, a, is an issue. Fuel is an issue, labor is an issue. I mean, we're talking 50, 60 percent, and you know they'll. And the thing is, like, it's not like we lose 50 or 50 percent, 50 or 60 percent of exports. Like, it'd be more because you keep what you need at home first, and then the surplus is what goes out for exports. So if Ukraine was using 25 percent of their grain and exporting 75 percent of it, if you lose half your production, well, you're still going to keep that whatever that 25 percent number was home. It just now is 50 percent. And, you know, instead of exporting 75%, you're only exporting, um, 
you have 50% of your head, which is basically that 25% number. So like if you've produced, you know, 50 million metric tons and, you know, 12 stayed home and 38 went out, you know, you start producing 50 million metric tons while 12 and 25 million metric tons, 12 and a half or 12 still stays home. It's just since instead of exporting 37 or 38, you know, million tons, um, you know, you're going to be exporting only 12. So I think the way that's just a number. That's not the, I think what's going to happen though, is we'll probably see exports cut in half out of Ukraine. And that is going to be supportive for wheat and, uh, and corn here. The one thing I will say about the wheat market is about 80% of global exports, the production is done in the North and Northern hemisphere, the winter wheat, which will get, will come along in, uh, you know, May, June, July, and all the all the winter wheat will be harvested and hit in the global export export market then you know august september we got harvest for spring wheat um and we'll see all the spring wheat then start hitting the global export market in the fall so if there is going to be you know be a big shot of new crop uh coming into the markets starting in like may june on the wheat side and then you know then this fall for spring wheat, uh, corn, soybeans, and canola. And it's going to be a big shot of supply into the market. And we could see the next leg lower if we get some normal supply. So just something to keep in mind, um, whether you are a farmer or you're buying commodities, uh, the price risk for the spring summer is to the upside because we have tight old crop stocks, but the price risk is to the downside when we start talking about new crop and going into 2024. And we gotta uh, we gotta have our commodity buy plans and our farmer um, sell plans adjusted accordingly. So um, that is about it. If you have any questions for me, let me know. Um, I think uh, we most likely are kind of choppy here for the next couple of weeks. Going to be a little volatile. Um, if you are a buyer of commodities, I still think you know some calls up top in case you get any in case the weather patterns change it's a good way to make sure you don't blow through your budget for this year and um if i'm on the on the farmer side i'm i'm pretty much selling out old crop if you feel like you have a fear of missing out on higher prices you can buy some cheap calls too and i get aggressive on new crop um you know i don't think 14 you know 1350 soybeans we could be a dollar and a half to two dollars lower at harvest and with the corn we could be a buck lower so you got to protect yourself, especially with input prices so high this year. So that is it for me today. I hope everyone has a great week, and I'll talk to you all later. This material is conveyed as a solicitation for entering into a derivatives transaction. This material has been prepared by a Daniels Trading Broker who provides research market commentary and trade recommendations as part of his or her solicitation for accounts and solicitation for trades. Daniels Trading, its principals, brokers, and employees may trade in derivatives for their own accounts or for the accounts of others due to various factors such as risk tolerance, margin requirements, trading objectives, short-term versus long-term strategies, technical versus fundamental market analysis, and other factors, such trading may result in the initiation or liquidation of positions that are different from or contrary to the opinions and recommendations contained therein. Past performance 
is not necessarily indicative of future performance. The risk of loss in trading futures contracts or commodity options can be substantial, and therefore, investors should understand the risks involved in taking leveraged positions and must assume responsibility for the risks associated with such investments and for their results. You should carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for you in light of your circumstances and financial resources. You should read the risk disclosure accessed at www.danielstrading.com. Daniel's Trading is not affiliated with, nor does it endorse any trading system, newsletter, or similar service. Daniel's Trading does not guarantee or verify any performance claims made by such systems or services.